and rolling in three, two, one. Okay, I'm your host, Robert Kraut, and I'd like to welcome you to Lights, Camera, Ulysses. Join me on an odyssey through one of literature's most intense and rewarding novels as we unpack some of the cinematic influences behind the work of James Joyce. You won't need too much on this journey except for a copy of Ulysses, preferably the Gabbler edition, access to a streaming service for movies, and most importantly, some real dedication. As we go along, you'll notice that each of these episodes corresponds with a chapter in the novel. So to get the most out of this experience, I would recommend reading the chapter and then listening to the episode. Afterwards, watch some of the films and then do some external research and then work backwards from there. So let's get it going. These first four episodes will serve as an introduction of sorts as we're eased into the world of Ulysses. And in each of these episodes, I will give you a crash course on pre-1930 cinema, working from D.W. Griffiths all the way to Charlie Chaplin. Try to note the four principal cinematic movements that I discuss, as well as how the stylistic elements from each movement find their way into Joyce's writing. Off we go, and good luck. Hello, and welcome to the first episode of Lights, Camera, Ulysses, the premier podcast on all things Joyce and cinema. This is your host, Robert Kraut, and I'm recording today from Sandy Cove, Dublin. Just a quick shout out to the sponsors. This episode is brought to you by Mulligan and Company. For the best shaving lather either side of the River Liffey, choose Mulligan and Company. Okay, so kicking off the episode today, I want to talk about introductions, or you know, first scenes and chapters, which are critical for drawing in someone with a short attention span like myself. And I want to not only highlight how the first chapter of Ulysses, Telemachus, functions as an effective opener, but also how it functions as a very filmic opener as well. So the first thing we're going to do is ask, what is the purpose of a first scene or chapter? Now it might be tempting to answer this question in a rote manner, saying that the introduction is designed to begin the plot or introduce the characters, and this isn't necessarily wrong. However, I'd argue that Joyce and his filmmaker contemporaries use the introduction for two other functions, which are far more interesting to me than plot or character. And these functions are, one, to establish tone and mood, and two, to establish the rules of the project. So in the early 20th century, the public often consumed narratives via these Dickensian tomes, which had the luxury of being able to be read over a long period of time. However, with the advent of film, filmmakers realized that they didn't have the 20 plus hours that novelists had to convey their story to an audience. So they opted to utilize the medium of film to streamline the narrative experience. And what was at their disposal? They had visuals in order to establish a setting, and they had music to help build an ambiance. Additionally, the director was equipped with a style which dictated the rules of how these audio-visuals were used. You know, deciding where the camera was placed, how it moved, how the film was edited, among many other things. And this auteurism, as it is referred to, is what always drew me to films. Looking at one example of this, I watched the infamous and, I must say, quite racist, yet technically groundbreaking film, The Birth of a Nation. So the introduction cuts between a variety of wide shots, establishing the setting in the Old South, as somber music plays over shots of plantation homes in this town where the story unfolds. By setting it up this way, Griffiths is telling his audience that this is going to be an epic story, and panoramic in view, as his camera isn't bound to stage, but instead drifts through many locations, panning over a wide array of scenery and characters. Back in literature, Joyce has his own epic to tell and he's tired of using the same old, trite literary techniques in order to tell it. 
Instead of plot, he wants to establish the general rule of Ulysses, or what I would argue is the guiding principle of the novel. And that principle is the idea of the mundane, the lived-in, and the chance to rebuild a certain time and place, Dublin, through words and movement. This is done by placing the majority of the first chapter in a confined setting, the home of Stephen Dedalus and his roommates. Nothing really happens in this first chapter, but Joyce is establishing that his novel will be all about consciousness. However, instead of interiority, this chapter's consciousness is primarily distilled from speech, as Daedalus and Mulligan exchange mundane, funny, and intellectual dialogue. And this intention to everyday dialogue placed me in the tower as I watched Joyce move his characters through the space, hearing them as they discuss day-to-day things like rent money and who's paying for the milk. Yet Joyce is doing something even more sly by staging this first scene in the tower, something that excited my filmic sensibilities. As beyond the walls of the tower, the vista of Dublin is suggested. And just as in Birth of a Nation, as Griffiths entices the audience with epic shots of the South, Joyce uses this tower as a pedestal on which to mount the camera, his reader, as he promises them a more in-depth look at the subject, Dublin. And this is where I first started seeing Joyce, the director, in this novel. Thank you for tuning in this week, and we'll be back with the next episode by the time Buck Mulligan has finished swimming. I hope you enjoyed Telemachus, as I find it an absolute pleasure to read. The next episode, Nestor, might be even more straightforward, and I would go so far as to say that it's the clearest distillation of the political themes explored in Ulysses. Hello and welcome to the second episode of Lights, Camera, Ulysses, the premier podcast on all things Joyce and Cinema. This is your host, Robert Kraut, and I'm recording today from Dalkey. Just a quick shout out to the sponsors, this episode is brought to you by the DZ History Hour. If you want to learn about nationalism and fascism, there really is no other podcast to listen to. So today I'm going to zoom in, no pun intended, on a more specific filmic element of Ulysses, and that element is lighting which is an interesting aspect of film technique for me, as I love cinematography and find it really fascinating how different filmmakers can use light to tell their stories. So just around the time that Ulysses was being published, there was a cinematic movement on the rise in Germany, and that movement was expressionism. While people like D.W. Griffiths helped to pioneer cinematic technique, it was expressionists like Murnau and Wien who revolutionized lighting and scenery. Taking influence from painting, these filmmakers sought to convey the subconscious through the visual, This often involved expressing fears, so the sets were otherworldly and frightening. Jagged angles and deep shadows where the evil of the movie lurked. For instance, the cabinet of Dr. Caligari, which I watch every October, conveys insanity and fascism through incredibly eerie lighting. Interestingly, while films like Caligari are often talked about with regards to their cinematography, the shadows and light were often painted onto the set and weren't created by actual lights. So back in Joyce World, we have a subtly tension-filled chapter as Stephen Dedalus confronts the regressive Mr. Deasy about Irish politics. And the scene opens with Deasy inviting Dedalus into his office. So without lighting the space in a boring way by saying, you know, Deasy's office was dark, Joyce is able to conjure darkness by describing the weight of the smoky air and the various paintings that hang on the walls. These paintings are of horses, which are often done in shadowy and murky brownish tones, giving the set a certain ambiance that reminded me of those dark German films. And if you cheat, like I did, and view Joyce's notes on the novel, you'll see that the key color of this chapter is brown, 
which is evocative of money in excess, smoky cigar lounges where bad deals are made. However, there is a beam of light that divides Stephen and Deasy, acting as both a physical and metaphorical barrier while Deasy lectures Stephen on the role of Jewish people in Ireland's demise. And as Deasy reaches the crescendo of his anti-Semitic tirade, he enters the beam of light, and his blue eyes are illuminated. I again begin to see Joyce, the director, in this imagery as filmmakers often use the lighting of the eyes to convey insanity. And by calling on this tradition, Joyce is able to illuminate the subconscious insanity of Deasy through lighting. This is made all the more pronounced and claustrophobic by the fact that outside, in full light, children are playing an innocent game of hockey, untouched by the horrors of adulthood in modern politics. But Joyce isn't done with his lighting tricks, and when Stephen finally escapes the shadowy lair, he's still covered in a speckled darkness cast by leaves, a visual cue that he's haunted by this encounter. And so am I, for that matter. Thank you for tuning in this week, and we'll be back with the next episode by the time the kids solve Stephen's riddle. Okay, the next chapter, Proteus, is the first challenge of the novel. It's really complex, but it contains some really important insights into the character of Stephen. My advice for this chapter is to not get bogged down by the minutiae of the stream of consciousness style, and instead just let yourself get carried away by the prose and the beauty of what's being talked about. Hello and welcome to the third episode of Lights, Camera, Ulysses, the premier podcast on all things Joyce and Cinema. This is your host, Robert Kraut, and I'm recording today from the beach at Sandy Mount. Just a quick shout out to the sponsors, this episode is brought to you by Focus Max. Focus Max is a heavily caffeinated beverage that is perfect for when you need maximum energy and concentration. Yes, I'm looking at you, Proteus. For those of you who have tackled this beast of a chapter, you might be wondering how in the world something so interior, so reliant on consciousness and thought, can be considered filmic. The answer rests in the idea of montage. Beginning in the early 20th century, filmmakers from the Soviet Union began experimenting with editing. If you've spent days on end editing like I have, you know how dull and uninspiring this aspect of film can be. However, they saw a tremendous opportunity in this process, going so far as to suggest that the importance of a film didn't rest in the images themselves, but in the transitions between the images. This came to be known as the dialectic, and these filmmakers theorized that two consecutive images created a third image, or idea, in the mind of the viewer. The most notable example of this is the Kuleshov sequence, which uses the same footage of a man staring at a subject, but changes the subject that he is looking at. This leads the audience to read different emotions into the man's blank expression, creating the dialectic. In Stephen's digressive and highly intellectual thoughts, Joyce touches on this theory of montage editing quite a bit. So let's look at an example. Stephen thinks about Florence McCabe, this midwife who he sees on the beach. We'll call this image A. Stephen then imagines that McCabe and her companion are carrying a bag with a fetus in it. We'll call this image B. The dialectic that these two images create is grotesque and comments on the cycle of birth and death. This idea is image C. However, the montage doesn't end there, and Joyce uses the fetus's umbilical cord like a reel of film, following it back deeper into Stephen's mind. Taking one more example, Joyce uses this umbilical cord, image A, and then moves on to the biblical Eve, who is without a navel, image B. 
This creates an opaque dialectic, image C, which I can only assume is a commentary on history and the gradual degradation of mankind. While it's possible for me to go through and form a dialectic out of Stephen's entire chain of thought, that's kind of boring. Instead, I just want to drive home the idea that to Joyce, consciousness isn't that different from film. And just as filmmakers string together disparate images to form a narrative, so too does the mind wander from thought to thought, forming a coherent pattern of beliefs and memories. That, to me, is the point of Proteus, not the complex musings of Stephen, but the process by which Stephen has these complex musings. And it's given me a newfound appreciation for what is otherwise a dull part of the artistic process, editing. Thank you for tuning in this week, and we'll be back with the next episode by the time I fully grasp what is going on in this chapter. It could be a while. Hello, and welcome to the fourth episode of Lights, Camera, Ulysses, the premier podcast on all things Joyce and cinema. This is your host, Robert Kraut, and I'm recording today from Eccles Street. Just a quick shout out to the sponsors. This episode is brought to you by Chester's Kidney in a Can. For a quick and tangy snack on the go, choose Chester's. So the topic of today's podcast isn't technique, but genre, or more specifically, comedy. As we've gone through some film history in the last few episodes, you'll notice that a lot of the movies I've referenced have been serious, somber, and reflective. And that's all well and fine given the chapters 2 and 3 of Ulysses are similarly dramatic. However, sometimes it's good to sit back and have a laugh, to be touched by the sentimental and the comedic. So I'm going to suggest a two-fold anecdote for the blues. Chaplin Keaton films and Chapter 4 of Ulysses, also called Calypso. When you think of old comedy films, you probably think of movies from the 70s, or perhaps, if you're of a certain age, you might think of films like His Girl Friday. And they're great, I mean, I love Monty Python just as much as the next guy. But I'm going to go out on a limb and designate those films as pieces of comedic literature, whereas the silent comedies of the early 20th century are comedic film. This is probably quite a contentious statement. However, understanding the difference between these two categories will help us gain a better understanding of how Joyce uses comedy in his work. So to begin, I would define comedic literature as a comedy of words, meaning that the humor is found primarily in the dialogue and circumstance of the main characters. You see this in most films, and Joyce uses this often, like with Buck Mulligan. Comedic film, however, is based in visuals and event. See, comedians like Buster Keaton and Charlie Chaplin began their career as pantomimes, relying on action to convey their humor. And with the advent of film, this style was perfect, seeing as these movies couldn't even utilize dialogue. They were silent. That's why you'll find fantastic set pieces like Keaton on the train in The General, or a personal favorite of mine, Chaplin in the Factory in Modern Times. And the amazing thing about visual humor is that it's timeless, because a joke might get dated, but someone slipping on a banana peel is, and always will be, funny. And I think Joyce knew this. That's why with Chapter 4, he wants his reader to see the mundane yet silly nature of Bloom's morning routine. This is apparent right off the bat as we encounter Bloom in the kitchen, playing with his cat. And he gets down on all fours, emulating the feline in a vaudevillian way, as the cat simply responds with a meow. This exaggerated visual humor carries on to the butcher shop as Bloom imagines this woman whacking a carpet on a clothesline, an oddly sexualized bit of imagery that is nevertheless comedic. But it's towards the end of this chapter where we truly get the chaplain's set piece. Upstairs in the house, Bloom is putzing around, talking to Molly, while downstairs the kidney that Bloom purchased, which was the primary object of desire in this chapter, is burning on the stove. We now see him running downstairs, into the smoke-filled kitchen to salvage his breakfast. So this tells us our hero is quite ungraceful, a person who has no problem pretending to be a cat, but who struggles to carry out routine activities. A chaplain of sorts. 
and I'd be remiss if I didn't talk about the edgy form of visual comedy, the scatological. While it wasn't included in old silent films, defecation and flatulence have been mainstays in comedy movies, and Joyce beat them to the punch as he ends this chapter with Bloom defecating on the toilet and wiping himself with a page out of a magazine. A hilarious bit of imagery that informs us that Joyce values shock humor and slapstick just as much as he values the highbrow, dialogue-centric comedy of manners. Thank you for tuning in this week, and we'll be back with the next episode by the time Bloom is finished using the restroom. See, Ulysses isn't too tough so far. I mean, Proteus is kind of dense, but definitely doable, right? So this next episode marks our first outing into the realm of film theory, and we're going to talk about the importance of aesthetics. We'll return to this topic later, but think of this as an introductory lesson. Because understanding the importance of aesthetics is really crucial after this part of the novel, as things get, well, progressively stranger and way more complex as we move forward. Hello, and welcome to the fifth episode of Lights, Camera, Ulysses, the premier podcast on all things Joyce and Cinema. This is your host, Robert Kraut, and I'm recording today from Marion Square. This episode is brought to you by Anonymail. For confidential affairs via the Postal Service, Anonymail has you covered, offering premium anonymity starting at $3 per letter. So for this episode, we're going to focus on a common principle that Joyce and filmmakers share. And this principle is an aversion to exposition. While I've said it many times now, it bears repeating. The strongest characteristic of film, which is visual aesthetics, is also the strongest characteristic of Joyce. This doesn't mean that he's literally using visuals, but it does mean that he's more interested in how literature affects perception than, say, story or character. And that's what separates Joyce's modernist writings from someone like Dickens, who is more focused on complex story worlds and pushing conventional literary traditions to the limit. But let's back up a minute and look at one of my favorite films, Metropolis. While Metropolis was released after Ulysses, it nevertheless epitomizes the idea of visual storytelling. So in Metropolis, we have a fairly complex story, the typical man rebelling against the system sort of thing. But that's not why people remember this film. Instead, people remember it for the stunning and surprisingly undated special effects. Whether that means the detailed miniatures of the city or the various film tricks that convey magic, I'm thinking particularly of the transformation scene where this robot turns into a woman via strange electrical currents. It's all very striking, and the director, Fritz Lang, is only using the story to move us between these set pieces so that we can experience the overpowering visuals of his art. So what does that have to do with Chapter 5 of Ulysses? Well, all along, Joyce has made it very clear that he's not concerned with the epic narrative. Otherwise, we'd have a multi-generational family saga of the blooms as they encounter, you know, political and social turmoil. Instead, Joyce takes his aim away from exposition, the explained narrative, and focuses on the immediacy of aesthetics. We don't have to call this the visual, but I feel like Joyce is operating on his reader's consciousness, whether that's through stream of consciousness or through bizarre imagery, like the description of Bloom's genitals as the limp father of thousands, a languid floating flower. However, as I was reading this chapter, I came across two instances of actual manifesto, Joyce telling me that he values aesthetics over exposition. The first of these is a bit of a stretch, so bear with me. So we have Bloom. He's reading this letter from his mistress, Martha, and she is, to put it bluntly, a poor writer with bad prose and incompetent grammar and spelling. However, the exposition of this affair, the words of the letter, isn't what excites Bloom. 
Rather, it's the smell of the letter as he tries to pick up Martha's scent on the paper, and it's the tactile feel of the flower that she sent with it. In other words, the sensations of the letter are more important than the words. And the other instance of Manifesto is a little more obvious as Joyce uses stream of consciousness to get into Bloom's mind as he's thinking about physics. Maybe this is interesting to some people, but the incompetent and expository ponderings of Bloom made me yearn for a new passage, one refocused on immediacy and sensation. And if to Joyce, the traditional is this type of exposition, you know, the mathematical and rote explanation of an idea, then the modern is the spectacle, the use of style to elevate the description of, you know, a bath into something epic. This is Joyce's version of special effects his version of turning a robot into a woman. And this is Ulysses as a whole. Thank you for tuning in this week. I'll be back by the time Bloom figures out what he's doing with that soap. The next three episodes center around film technique. So for aspiring filmmakers like myself, these are really invaluable and practical lessons that can be taken away from the text. And you'll notice that Ulysses starts to feel more immediate for me and my career as I look towards Joyce as an artistic influence, someone who gives me permission to experiment with form and play around with aesthetics. Hello, and welcome to the sixth episode of Lights, Camera, Ulysses, the premier podcast in all things Joyce and Cinema. This is your host, Robert Kraut, and I'm recording today from Glass Nevin Cemetery. This episode is brought to you by O'Connell Undertakers. It's never too early to plan your funeral, and O'Connell Undertakers will make you feel at home in their world-class facilities, honeycombed under Dublin. The last couple of episodes have been focused around theory, but I'm going to use Chapter 6, Hades, to refocus on cinematic style in Ulysses. We're going to be talking about the tracking shot, or in layman's terms, the shot that follows people or objects. Of all of the film techniques, this is probably the most misused, a chance for pretentious directors to show everyone how smart they are. Let's take Birdman, an exhausting exercise in pseudo-intellectualism that caused me to roll my eyes multiple times at the gimmick. It's all made to look like one shot. But the director of Birdman is ignoring what the tracking shot is meant to do. It's not meant to wow the audience at how often the camera moves. It's instead used to orient the viewer with the action. In other words, static shots keep the viewer at a distance from the characters, like a stage play, whereas tracking shots put the viewer into the environment, moving them through the scene as they feel what the characters feel. It's a powerful tool, and one that should be used sparingly for maximum effect. Let's take one of the most famous tracking shots, a scene in this movie called Wings from 1927. This scene takes place at a social event, and in order to put the viewer into this social gathering, the camera moves across multiple tables as we see characters laughing and fighting, and the camera finally stops at the table of our protagonist as his glass is refilled. By using this tracking shot, the director is emulating the experience of being at the party, the voyeuristic aspect of eavesdropping on the lives of strangers and the movement associated with having a good time. Back in Ulysses, Joyce isn't really wanting us to have a good time, but he nevertheless uses the tracking shot to accomplish something. In this chapter, Bloom goes to the funeral of Patty Dignam. Rather than having the action all confined to the service, with Bloom sitting and reminiscing about his deceased friend, most of this chapter involves movement, or tracking. The first half of the chapter takes place in a carriage on the way to the funeral, and we follow Bloom and three other men through the city. Rather than confining the men's conversation to a static room, Joyce wants the reader to feel the movement, taking them through constantly shifting scenery. A herd of cattle, a pub, and another funeral procession, just to name a few. But why? 
While some of the things that the men see, like this man named Dodd, spark conversation, this movement is really meant to emphasize the vitality of Dublin, the way the city lives and breathes, its inhabitants going on with their lives despite hardship. And this vitality puts the reader in a strange place, as we follow the flow of life until it stops at the cemetery, and we encounter death, the static cold of a church pew. The second tracking shot in this chapter occurs as the men make their way through the cemetery. Unlike the first tracking shot, this is meant to emphasize death as we move from tombstone to tombstone, feeling the endless rows of graves and mausoleums, friends and family that are no longer with us. And this is depressing and haunting. But prior to reading this chapter, I was a little bit nervous because I knew it was a funeral chapter, and I expected it to be unbearably dull, Bloom sitting in a church and pondering existence. So when Joyce suddenly became a director and pushed for movement, I was pleasantly surprised to say the least. And that should be an important lesson for filmmakers. Find purpose in movement and use it where it counts. Thank you for tuning in and I'll be back after a thoughtful examination of mortality. Hello, and welcome to the seventh episode of Lights, Camera, Ulysses, the premier podcast on all things Joyce and cinema. This is your host, Robert Kraut, and I'm recording today from the Freeman newspaper offices. This episode is brought to you by Bloom Advertising. If you want a company that deeply cares about your product and how it's presented, choose Bloom Advertising. I'm going to cheat a little bit on this episode because of an obvious conundrum. Ulysses was published in 1922, and the first film with dialogue, The Jazz Singer, debuted in 1927. So while spoken dialogue wasn't used in the films that Joyce was watching, it's nevertheless a crucial aspect of film today. But let's back up and ask ourselves, what is dialogue, both in relation to films and literature? Since I've already argued that films aren't about exposition, it seems strange that I'm now drawing attention to the words in movies. But good dialogue isn't about exposition, it's about style. Similar to tracking shots, effective dialogue can be used to draw the viewer into the film, helping them feel the ambiance of the world and the personalities of the characters. I'm going to jump forward 80 plus years and argue that Quentin Tarantino, whether you love or hate his films, understands this about dialogue. Take his magnum opus, Pulp Fiction. So much of that film is composed of mundane and humorous conversations. Small talk about burgers and foot massages, what type of heroin is trending. These characters aren't explaining anything really, but they're building a world with their words. And one critique of Tarantino is that all of his characters sound the same, which may be, but I love the way that they sound. Not quite like normal people, but close enough to feel real. And so we have Aeolus, the chapter about rhetoric and lungs, segmented by its most notable stylistic element, newspaper headlines. However, I'd argue that the heart of Aeolus rests in its dialogue. We have a lot of characters talking. While Joyce often indicates who is talking by saying, you know, changing his drink, Mr. Dedalus said, a great deal of dialogue is left untagged. This gives these conversations a chaotic tone, where the reader must figure out who's talking. While this might be viewed as a flaw, Joyce isn't aiming for clarity, but for confusion, trying to capture the hectic nature of an office setting, people talking over one another, and sounds coming from every direction. One of my favorite filmmakers, Robert Altman, goes for the same effect in his movies, such as Nashville, where multiple tracks of dialogue play at the same time. But it's not just how the dialogue is arranged that makes this chapter important, but the content of it as well. Really all throughout Ulysses so far, Joyce is focused on mundane speech, choosing conversations about milk over grand Shakespearean soliloquies. This chapter is no different, and the conversation shifts from riddles to gossip and all the way to higher concepts like history and the art of journalism. 
and it's written very colloquially, capturing the vocal fluctuations of the characters, as well as the slang and profanity that they use. A personal favorite of mine comes from Crawford when he tells Bloom that Keyes can, quote, kiss his royal Irish arse. Hilarious, but also effective in establishing the world of Ulysses. And with this dialogue, it's important to consider that these journalists, the heralds of truth and history in Dublin, are just as full of hot air as everyone else. A critique of journalism? Perhaps, but I think Joyce views all dialogue as empty, to some extent, or at least separated from a grand narrative. That doesn't mean that it can't be entertaining, though, and filmmakers today should strive to use dialogue in this way, stylized and not expository. Thank you for tuning in, and I'll be back after I figured out all of the historical allusions in this chapter. Whoa. Hello, and welcome to the eighth episode of Lights, Camera, Ulysses, the premier podcast on all things Joyce and Cinema. This is your host, Robert Kraut, and I'm recording today from O'Connell Street. This episode is brought to you by the Menton Law Firm. Specializing in cases of libel and slander, the Menton Law Firm will serve all of your legal needs. Peristalsis, the mechanism of contraction and relaxation by which we digest food. Also, an apt metaphor for today's topic, pacing. The idea of pacing is different from other techniques, as it's invisible, having more to do with time than space, and it functions very differently in film than it does in literature. Because the cinematic experience, at least traditionally, exists in a two-hour time frame, where the viewer experiences the art in one sitting. But try finishing Ulysses in one sitting. It's probably doable, but very unpleasant. Instead, the act of reading is in itself peristalsis. Contraction, you're reading. Relaxation, you're not. But pacing goes beyond the time frame of experience, and instead describes how you experience. For instance, there's the fast-paced action films where it's all contraction, explosions, and excitement. And there's the slow-paced art films where it's all relaxation, the camera holding on an image of a cow for two minutes. Well, it's a subjective sensibility. I prefer literature and films that use alternative pacing, moving from action to drama and back again. For instance, Vertigo, one of my favorite films, strikes a wonderful balance between the relaxed, dreamy scenes of romance and the contracted, tense chase sequences. Returning to the difference between mediums, I would argue that alternative pacing is doubly important in literature, because a dull movie is easier to get through than a dull novel. And likewise, a novel composed of only action is a 12-hour waste of time, compared to the two-hour waste of time that a film like Die Hard is. So we have the master Joyce, who exaggeratedly executes this alternative pacing in the chapter Les Dragonians. Sculpting the chapter around the style that emulates digestion, Joyce shows us Bloom as he walks down the street, moving from inaction, musings on STDs and Molly, to action, his conversation with his Mrs. Breen, and then again from inaction, Bloom's thoughts on politics and his past, to action. He goes into a pub and has lunch. Interestingly, while this chapter is quite long, and features about the same amount of interiority as Proteus, it was far easier for me to get through than other chapters. And I believe that that's due to the pacing. Because just as you're about to grow tired of Bloom's thoughts, Joyce infuses movement and contraction into the story. And just as you grow weary of Bloom eating and talking, you move back inside his head. In a way, Joyce must have not only been aware of pacing, but where the art of pacing was headed as audiences with shorter and shorter attention spans came out of theaters and demanded a similarly paced work of literature. So what does this chapter teach us about film, or vice versa? It teaches us that we always need to have a tempo in storytelling. 
If the tempo is too slow, we lose the audience, and if it's too fast, we fail to engage with the hearts and minds of our viewers. Rather, balance is key, regardless of the subject matter. And Joyce ends this chapter with a very filmic instance of alternative pacing that is indicative of the thriller genre. So we get the contraction, Joyce spots Boylan, and the relaxation, he evades him. In other words, the mouse escapes the cat. And this familiar mechanism of suspense rests entirely on the invisible yet crucial tool of pacing. Thank you for tuning in, and I'll be back before Nosy Flynn leaves the bar. This next episode is one of two instances where I found it quite difficult to link Ulysses to cinema. So what do I do when faced with this roadblock? I improvise. For people averse to theory, this episode might not be for you. But then again, if you don't like theory, Scylla and Charybdis will be an outright drag to read. My advice for getting through it? Just try to think of it as a portal into Stephen's brain. Whereas Proteus shows us his thought process and interior emotions, this chapter demonstrates his raw intellect. Hello, and welcome to the ninth episode of Lights, Camera, Ulysses, the premier podcast on all things Joyce and Cinema. This is your host, Robert Kraut, and I'm recording today from the National Library in Dublin. Just a quick shout out to the sponsors. This episode is brought to you by Daedalus Notes. If you or a friend you know are struggling to keep up with Willie Shakespeare, Daedalus Notes is a must-have, with expertly crafted commentary that walks you through all of the Bard's works. So this week's chapter is notoriously dense, given that it centers around Stephen and his very complex theories about the life and work of William Shakespeare. In turn, it's difficult to link this chapter to a specific film technique or even a film genre. Instead, we're going to be focusing on two ideas that have become quite prevalent in discussions of film. The first is the idea of overanalyzing a work of art, and the second is the concept of intertextuality, in other words, when a piece of art references other works of art. So brace yourself as I attempt to intellectualize like Stephen, probably against my better judgment. There was a documentary that came out a couple years ago called Room 237. It's not a very good documentary, but it outlines various theories regarding Stanley Kubrick's adaptation of The Shining. These theories range from the idea that the film revealed the falsity of the Apollo mission, all the way to the idea that The Shining is somehow a commentary on Native American genocide. In any case, they're not very good theories, but the film subtextually posits that people tend to attribute qualities to great artists when those qualities are not necessarily present or real. Bring in Stephen, who puts forward this theory that works like Hamlet should be read as representative depictions of Shakespeare's tumultuous personal life. Could Stephen be correct? Absolutely. But I think Joyce is deliberately commenting on the idea that it's possible to overanalyze a work of art. The ironist in me finds this quite comical, as Joyce and Ulysses are among the most analyzed items in the artistic community. However, I'm going to take some intellectual liberty and suggest that this chapter parodies scholarly overanalysis. And I'm also going to use this dictum to draw a conclusion with regards to Ulysses and art in general. That maybe it's more prudent to take in the aesthetics of a work, the raw emotional experience, rather than drowning in the minutiae and what an artist might have meant by such and such a phrase. With that out of the way, I do want to talk about the idea of intertextuality. As early as the 1920s, films like Greed or even The Phantom of the Opera found their inception in classic literary works. While this isn't intertextuality in the ordinary sense, that wouldn't come until the pastiche-filled cinema of the 60s and 70s, there is an interesting question that this phenomenon raises. How should one work of art reference another work, either through adaptation or pastiche? I think Joyce lays out a very solid answer to this question in Scylla and Charybdis. 
Pretend for a moment that Stephen is a filmmaker called in to direct Hamlet, and this chapter is the pitch meeting. Now it would be tempting for Stephen, the director, to say, I'm going to adapt Hamlet just as Shakespeare would have liked. There are two problems with this approach, though. The first is that Stephen doesn't know with certainty what Shakespeare's intentions are or were. And the second, even bigger problem, is that the adaptation features a different artist and a different medium. So instead, Stephen chooses to pitch Hamlet as it appears to him. As an autobiographical and emotional piece centered more on failed relationships than ghosts and murder. In this, Joyce and Stephen are referencing and using Hamlet, sure, but they're putting their own spin on it, and thus producing a separate work of art. You can call this artistic byproduct criticism, or you can call it adaptation. The important thing is that Stephen is reading himself into the work, and that's why it'd make a hell of a better adaptation than some robot who tries to take the bard's words literally. So is Stephen perhaps overanalyzing? Sure, but there's virtue in bringing yourself into a work, as long as you don't layer your analysis with a facade of objectivity. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll be back by the time I trace out Shakespeare's family tree. This next episode not only covers what, in my opinion, is the most underrated chapter in the book, but it also covers one of the most underrated and underutilized cinematic techniques. So enjoy. It's the calm before the storm. Hello and welcome to the 10th episode of Lights, Camera, Ulysses, the premier podcast on all things Joyce and Cinema. This is your host, Robert Kraut, and I'm recording today from north of the River Liffey in Dublin. Just a quick shout out to the sponsors. This episode is brought to you by People Tracker. Arguably unethical, People Tracker allows you to spy on the locations of friends, family, and strangers, all from the comfort of your living room. While the last episode was very theory-based, this episode sees the return of cinematic technique in Ulysses. In fact, I would go so far as to say that Joyce predicts an aspect of cinematic technique that wouldn't appear for another 60 years. And that technique is cross-cutting. In 1903, the film The Great Train Robbery was released. At only 12 minutes long, this unassuming western cemented a critical concept for filmmakers. And that concept is that audiences can follow multiple stories simultaneously. In other words, we can cut from bandits preparing dynamite to a train conductor and understand where these two events lie in relation to one another. This might seem obvious now, but it wasn't in 1903, and this concept of cross-cutting didn't reach its climax until the films of Robert Altman and his protege, Paul Thomas Anderson. But let's back up a second and ask what artistic hurdle facilitated the realization of cross-cutting's potential. So that hurdle, simply put, is a large cast of characters. Go back and look at movies made before 1970, and you'll notice that there was usually a reserved cast of maybe 8 or 10 characters. There are exceptions, of course, but that was the norm. So Altman and later Anderson came along and asked, what if we have 20 or 30 central characters in our film? How do we cross-cut coherently? Luckily, Joyce already tackled this hurdle in Ulysses, specifically in this chapter, Wandering Rocks, and he achieves cross-cutting through two methods, character interaction and event location. For character interaction, notice how Joyce introduces the one-legged sailor in the Father Come Me section, so that when he returns as the focus of the third section, the reader is already oriented with him and not confused. The second cross-cutting technique in this chapter is event location. By using events or actions like the tram, the blind stripling, the discarded pamphlet, and the royal cavalcade, Joyce is able to situate the reader in space and time. Once space and time are established, the various instances of cross-cutting can be put against this established tapestry and better understood in their context. I know, this sounds really dull and complicated, but let's consider the opening scene of Boogie Nights to see these two techniques in action. If you can, go on YouTube and watch it so you know what I'm talking about. 
All right, so we see Anderson establishing his tapestry through the character of Jack Horner as he enters his disco club and greets various characters. Through these greetings, we are introduced to these characters so that when the scene shifts attention towards them, we aren't confused. In terms of event location, this scene features a dance floor and dining area that bind different characters to spatial areas, establishing them in the location through either dance or conversation and eating. Additionally, Roller Girl, who will call an event for purposes of this argument, skates in and out of the scene, occasionally pulling the camera with her, but always tying the various characters together through her action, which is skating. In this way, she acts like the blind stripling or one-legged sailor who will walk along with the reader and help orient them in the world of Ulysses. Overall, scenes and chapters like these are technical marvels, and it's no wonder that Joyce designated Wandering Rocks as his chapter about mechanics. But the important thing to remember is that coherently displaying ensembles requires technique, and character interaction and event location are invaluable, should you choose to tackle this caliber of cross-cutting. Thank you for tuning in this week, and we'll be back by the time Elijah has arrived. If you detect frustration in my voice during the next episode, that's because I really don't like sirens. I like music though, so there's that. Yeah, music is cool, so try to drown out the tedium of this chapter with some background music. I like Baroque, but if you're more into classical, I won't judge you too much. In all seriousness, it's a shame that this chapter has such a fraught form because there's some real dense and emotional stuff that goes down. Hello, and welcome to the 11th episode of Lights, Camera, Ulysses, the premier podcast in all things Joyce and Cinema. This is your host, Robert Kraut, and I'm recording today from the Ormond Key Hotel. Just a quick shout out to the sponsors. This episode is brought to you by Liffy Salve. If you have a fair or sunburn-prone complexion, Liffy Salve's 120 SPF formula will ensure that you come back from the beach more bronze and red. I think it's fair to start off this episode with a disclaimer. Chapter 11 of Ulysses, Sirens, is easily my least favorite chapter of the novel thus far, and I feel that Joyce pushes language in a dull, rather than profound direction. With that being said, this chapter gives us the opportunity to discuss a critical aspect of film, music. Even before the advent of talkies, music has always existed in a symbiotic relationship with film, supplementing the visual experience and guiding the audience's emotions. And the use of music in film can be divided into two categories, broadly speaking. Music made for the film, i.e. the film score, and diegetic music played in the movie, i.e. the film's soundtrack. Luckily, Joyce demonstrates the unique power of both of these in Sirens. Let's start with the first, the film score. This, I'm sure everyone knows, is the orchestral composition that composers like John Williams or Bernard Herrmann create for a movie. But why do they do this? I mean, why does such a visual medium require music? So I'm no expert in music, but what I will say is that the medium has an almost supernatural tendency towards emotional manipulation. In other words, composers know how to evoke feelings of happiness with a major scale and sadness with a minor scale. Furthermore, if they want emotional tension, they increase the tempo. And for feelings of relief, they slow it down. Consider the shower scene in Psycho, with Herman's piercing and constant score that makes you feel like you're getting stabbed along with Janet Lee. Joyce is a clear proponent of the manipulative power of music, so he constructs the entire prose of this chapter in a musical form, whether that's through rhyme, alliteration, or automatopoeia. As I said, I'm not exactly sure which emotions Joyce is trying to manipulate through his musical prose. For me, it was frustration. But you also have to keep in mind the type of music that Joyce was listening to. Rather than the emotionally obvious songs of today, Joyce was considering composers who were obsessed with technicality and form. 
people like Wagner or Chopin, who can be emotionally inaccessible if you primarily consume popular music, like me. Where Joyce hits it out of the park is with his commentary on film soundtracks, i.e. the songs, usually lyrical and popular, that play inside a movie. Think Jumpin' Jack Flash and Scorsese's Mean Streets. Similar to a conversation about intertextuality, musical reappropriation can produce great and unique art, enabling the filmmakers to use characters' interactions with songs to comment on the story and further develop the character. In this chapter, songs from the opera Martha are sung, and the lyrics are interpolated into the text, acting as a soundtrack of sorts. And this isn't a very uplifting piece of music. Instead, it's forlorn and all about the cruelty of love. Therefore, it's no surprise that it evokes feelings of angst and sadness in Bloom, his going through his own bout of cruel love. So we get the song, sure, but we also get Bloom and the other men's reactions to the song, which takes the piece out of its original context and supplements both the novel and the original composition. That's why hearing a song on the radio can instantly take you back to a movie that the song appeared in, recalling the characters and emotions that the filmmaker associated with the music. This is a fantastic technique to have in your repertoire, and used together with a film score, it can help bring the visual experience into a new emotional realm. Thank you for tuning in this week, and we'll be back by the time those horses' hooves stop clacking. One word to describe this next chapter, redemption. I love Cyclops, and it might be my second favorite chapter in Ulysses. I also think the concept that I talk about in this episode is super important, not only for filmmakers, but anyone involved in the business of storytelling. Hello and welcome to the 12th episode of Lights, Camera, Ulysses, the premier podcast on all things Joyce and Cinema. This is your host, Robert Kraut, and I'm recording today from Barney Kiernan's Pub. Just a quick shout out to the sponsors. This episode is brought to you by Gary Owens Dog Food. Made out of organic rats and shrimp, Gary Owens Dog Food will help you give happiness and health to your favorite canine companion. Okay, so after Sirens, I was admittedly a little bit beat up. But along came Chapter 12, Cyclops. And with its inventive style and powerful dialogue, I was reminded why I love this novel. It's kind of like a girlfriend in a way. For every six days that it's amazing, there's always one day where you're like, ugh, what am I doing? And I almost thought about linking Cyclops' narration with the idea of voiceover, but then I thought, wait, there's a more straightforward and powerful lesson to be learned in this chapter. And that lesson, simply put, is that there should always be a heroic moment in your story, or an emotional payoff, if you will. So I've noticed a trend in American cinema over the last decade that was solidified with this year's Oscar nominations. And it seems though many filmmakers are pushing for a radical realism in their movies, purposefully excluding any cinematic character tropes. Practically speaking, this indicates a shift away from heroic antics towards a kind of nihilistic emotional stasis. This is a generalization, of course, but I do feel that there's a lack of humanism in today's cinema. And sometimes, when I sit down to write a script, I'll find myself avoiding the heroic moment. But then I read Cyclops, and I saw Joyce give Bloom his heroic moment. And I thought, you know, if Joyce advocates for this, then so should I. I want to back up for a minute and look at how he executes the heroic moment. Up until this point, Bloom has been depicted as a film character of the 2010s, meaning his passivity and perversions have painted him as a nihilistic and emotionally static, yet complex character. In Cyclops, though, Joyce places him in an intellectual coliseum with the intimidating and crass citizen. 
While reading, I was fully expecting Bloom to cower in the face of the citizens' anti-Semitism and fascism. This expectation is based on Bloom's characterization thus far. However, Joyce pulls a bait-and-switch on the reader, suddenly transforming Bloom into a hero. Critically, though, Joyce doesn't have Bloom throwing beer on the citizen's face or grandiosely humiliating the antagonist. Instead, Bloom stands up for himself and his beliefs, criticizing the citizen's anti-Semitism and standing up for genuine human decency. This predictably upsets the citizen, and Bloom leaves the pub in a hurry, so as not to get beaten to a pulp. I know what you might be thinking. How is that heroic? I mean, he ends up running away from the villain and there's no tangible victory. But that's where Joyce's idea of heroism comes in. Rather than depicting a literary version of heroism, you know, the knight in shining armor, Joyce advocates for a realistic depiction of bravery. And that can be loosely defined as a deviation. A deviation from the emotional immobility of everyday life in order to stand up for what is good and true in the face of injustice. So what does this realistic heroism do for us? Well, it offers an anecdote to a current problem in movies. Nobody, including Joyce, is advocating for a grand, braveheart-esque monologue in your film. It's oftentimes unrealistic and emotionally empty. However, giving characters a moment of realistic heroism can turn a story around and give audiences a genuine emotional catharsis. And this is being done to some extent. Look at the climax of last year's The Trial of the Chicago 7, which equates heroism with defiance, not political grandstanding. So what I'm saying is this needs to be done more, and consider Cyclops your permission to go ahead subtly and smartly with your heroic moment, the potential cornerstone of your film and the high point of your narrative. Thank you for tuning in this week, and we'll be back by the time Barney Kiernan's closes its doors. Welcome to Nausicaa. I hope you've recovered after the incredible experience of reading Cyclops. This chapter, however, will reward you, as it's an absolute dream to read. Also, I like talking about it because, well, I like talking about sex and taboo topics. What can I say? After Nausicaa, this podcast is going to go a little haywire given the nature of the remaining chapters, so enjoy this normality while you can. Hello and welcome to the 13th episode of Lights, Camera, Ulysses, the premier podcast on all things Joyce and Cinema. This is your host, Robert Kraut, and I'm recording today from Sandy Mount Strand. Just a quick shout out to the sponsors, this episode is brought to you by Boylan's Premier Irish Condoms. With STDs at an all-time high, it's more important than ever to ensure safe sex, and Boylan's has you covered with its patented all-organic condoms. After all the talk of virtue and heroism in the last episode, I want to dive into the immoral mud pit of sex. Someone smarter than me and whose name escapes me at the moment was quoted as saying something like, all great art centers around sex and death. In Ulysses, this is absolutely true. And if Hades is the chapter about death, then Nausicaa is the chapter about sex. I know, I know, I haven't gotten to the last chapter, but I understand that that's even more explicit than Nausicaa. In any case, I think Joyce depicts sexual acts in a very filmic way. Breaking this down a bit, I wanna start by talking about the Hayes Code which was established in 1934 and prohibited sexually explicit material from appearing in films. This led to a heavy use of innuendo by filmmakers in order to skirt around the code. One notable instance of this appears in North by Northwest, when Hitchcock cuts to a train entering a tunnel as Cary Grant seduces Ava Marie Saint. The implication, obviously, is that they had sex. Now I want to acknowledge the current state of sex in cinema. 
After the abolition of the Hayes Code, filmmakers took full advantage of their newfound freedom and shifted in the direction of realistic and explicit sex scenes. This was exciting for a while until internet porn came along and flooded the population with easy-to-access, unlimited sex made for whatever kink one might have. And then the explicit sex scenes in movies suddenly felt fake, awkward, and even downright unsexy. So looking back at Joyce and some of the Hayes Code era filmmakers can be helpful when navigating this societal hurdle because, as we've established, good films should probably deal with the topic of sex in some way. And I think Joyce and Hitchcock understand that there are two components that can erotically charge the audience without the use of pornography. Those two components are voyeurism and innuendo. To begin, the idea of voyeurism is inherent in the mediums of film and literature, as there is always a feeling that we are watching or reading something private. Therefore, building on voyeurism to establish a sex scene is critical, and puts the participant in a taboo place where they are viewing something they know they shouldn't be. Look at Rear Window, which turns Jimmy Stewart into a conduit for the viewer. In Nausicaa, Joyce builds voyeurism through privacy, making the reader desire an intimate interaction between Bloom and Gertie, the object of Bloom's desire. Yes, this is kind of creepy towards women, but I'd argue that Joyce is progressive in his view that men and women are equal in sexual deviancy. So with privacy established and the reader placed into the position of active voyeur, Joyce initiates innuendo to execute the sex scene. Now it's worth noting that there isn't actual sex in the scene, only Gertie teasing Bloom as he masturbates. But could you imagine if this was written straightforwardly? It would definitely border more on the side of gross than romantic. And the same goes with sex, which is always more beautiful in its fantastical form than in its realistic form. Understanding this, Joyce teases the reader by covering the scene with innuendo, describing Gertie leaning back and revealing her garters and Bloom's Roman candle bursting. It's all implied, and Joyce leaves it to the imagination of the reader, as they can take his words and appropriate them into their own sexual fantasy. The same goes with North by Northwest, as Hitchcock wants a viewer to imagine Cary Grant and Ava Marie Saint having sex. Does all of this mean that there shouldn't be explicit sex in films? Not really. But I think the lack of voyeuristic setup and fantastical innuendo have hindered the efficacy of cinematic sex scenes. Thank you for tuning in this week, and we'll be back by the time Bloom finishes the keys ad. This next chapter is the second instance where I found it difficult to link Ulysses to cinema. That isn't to say that there aren't moments of picturesque beauty to be found in Oxen. But I choose to ground this episode in theory, specifically in aesthetic theory, which I discussed in the fifth episode. In fact, this marks a side project within Lights, Camera, Ulysses, a mini-trilogy about aesthetics. If this sounds dreadful, don't worry, because the topics are really relevant and interesting, at least in my opinion. And using the parlance of our times, all of the remaining chapters in Ulysses are absolute bangers. As for any advice I have for Oxen, which many consider to be the most difficult chapter in the novel, I would recommend not worrying about understanding it. Instead, marvel at the technical genius of what Joyce accomplishes and bask in the amazing experience that it offers. Hello and welcome to the 14th episode of Lights, Camera, Ulysses, the premier podcast on all things Joyce and cinema. This is your host, Robert Kraut, and I'm recording today from the Hollis Street Maternity Ward. Just a quick shout out to the sponsors. This episode is brought to you by Callan Midwife Services. 
If you choose to bestow the curse of consciousness onto a child, Kellen Midwife Services has you covered with 24-7 care that meets all of your needs. Oh boy, I'm beginning to see why people call Ulysses the most difficult book ever written. And I'm also beginning to see that I'll have to adapt a new structure for the next few episodes. As opposed to past episodes where I've drawn direct connections between Joyce and cinema, I want to use the following episodes to discuss the principle of aesthetics, and I will select a passage from each chapter that demonstrates these principles in a cinematic way. Starting with Oxen, we will look at aesthetic variance, or as Joyce labels it, embryonic development. Simply put, this is when you change your style throughout a given work. In the case of Oxen, this can be seen with Joyce parodying various aesthetics, moving chronologically from style to style, thereby commenting on the evolution of the English language. And as I was writing this episode, I realized that there was a new television show called WandaVision that shares a similar sensibility, structuring itself around the evolution of the TV sitcom. So the first episode was shot like a 50s comedy, the second like a 60s comedy, and so on. I begrudgingly watched this series to see if it would add anything to the conversation, and it didn't in any meaningful way, except to show the dangers of this aesthetic variance, dangers that Joyce and his brilliance avoided. So Oxen of the Sun begins with a Beowulf-esque form of English, with phrases like send us, light one, bright one, whorehorn. Then the chapter moves on through like Dickensian English and all the way up to nonsensical vernacular, like the phrase, and I'm probably not saying this correctly, golly, what in tunkets you got in the Macintosh. And in between all of these examples, there are 20 other styles being emulated, all serving to demonstrate the progression of literature through time. So there are pros and cons to this stylistic choice, and the cons are quite notable, because when placing so much emphasis on style, you end up primarily commenting on form, therefore diminishing the importance of the subject being discussed. For instance, in this episode, it should theoretically be very emotional, as it deals with the birth of Mrs. Purefoy's child and centers around really topical matters like the life of the mother versus the life of the fetus, the ethics of childbearing, etc. Unfortunately, Joyce's insistence on embryonic development dampens these emotions, abstracting them, and making the reader focus on how things are being said as opposed to what is being said. Now this is where the pros come in. This insistence on aesthetic over narrative is, to put it bluntly, badass, and Joyce achieves something here that is akin to a meticulous renaissance painting, suggesting, at the end of the day, that style really is the message. The catch, of course, is that you have to have the talent and confidence that Joyce has to pull this off. So what does this mean for film? Well, it means two things. The first is that a message, no matter how important it is, has to be bolstered by a competent aesthetic. And the second idea attacks the concept of the auteur theory, or when a filmmaker's oeuvre shares the same aesthetic, think Kubrick with his use of perspective. Instead, Joyce posits that aesthetic variability is necessary and that one can use a dynamic style just as, if not more effectively, than a concrete style. For filmmaker equivalents, one can see this idea with Scorsese, who changes his aesthetic from movie to movie. But I think this idea should not only apply to an entire filmography, but should also apply to a single work, to some extent, with the style varying from scene to scene, which would therefore make the movie more effective and compelling. So in other words, don't be a filmmaker who confines yourself to long tracking shots and ample dialogue, instead change it up and shift from static camera work in a dialogue scene to dynamic camera work in a battle scene, or vice versa. But I can't emphasize this enough, it needs to make sense. For instance, in this chapter, Joyce uses Old English to talk about ethical topics and the semi-religious phenomenon of birth, and it's really beautiful and dramatic language, something akin to steady camera work on 60mm film. And then he moves on to vernacular to describe the drunk men and all of their antics, changing his style and using the equivalent of a shaky cam to convey their drunkenness in short, choppy sentences. In other words, his style more or less fits the subject he's talking about. 
So while I would love to see filmmakers try to copy this embryonic development idea, I think WandaVision shows the limitations of the aesthetic when it's applied to cinema. The best I can hope for is a willingness for people to experiment outside of their comfort zones, and to take stylistic risks that serve their story. So if you have a movie that shifts from comedic to serious, consider shooting the first half like a screwball comedy from the 1920s and the second half like a courtroom drama. Just an idea, but it actually sounds really compelling, so don't steal it. Thank you for tuning in this week, and we'll be back by the time Buck Mulligan's stomach settles. The next episode centers around Cersei, my favorite chapter in Ulysses. Part of the difficulty in covering Cersei is figuring out exactly what to talk about, as there are an abundance of cinematic lessons that can be extrapolated. In this episode, I choose to focus in on maximalism as part of my mini-series on aesthetics. But this is where I'm asking you, the listener, to do something. Go through this chapter with a fine-tooth comb and pick out a cinematic lesson that you find to be relevant or powerful. Share it with me, or don't. But just be aware that this is the cinematic treasure trove of the novel. Hello and welcome to the 15th episode of Lights, Camera, Ulysses, the premier podcast on all things droids and cinema. This is your host, Robert Kraut, and I'm recording today from Nighttown. Just a quick shout out to the sponsors. This episode is brought to you by Georgina Johnson's Escort Services. Kind of regularly tested, but guaranteed fun that Johnson Escorts are a must-have for your next bachelor party. Welcome to chapter 15 of Ulysses, easily my favorite chapter of the novel and the most cinematic thus far. So what is there to talk about? It's written as a play, so I could talk about how Joyce uses this format to fearlessly move his characters around on the page, which is something that screen artists should aspire towards if they want their projects greenlit. Or maybe I could talk about the symbiotic relationship between fantasy and cinema, as there's a man who literally unscrews his head from his shoulders in this chapter. But being the forward thinker I am, I will build off of the theme of the last episode, and use Cersei to talk about the aesthetic concept of maximalism. So broadly defined, maximalism is the idea that more is better when it comes to art. This could refer to a super ornate painting, a highly technical piece of music, or in this case, the length and breadth of a given piece of prose. To begin, Cersei takes up about a seventh of the page count in Ulysses. In other words, it's massive, but its length isn't its only maximalist quality, as it's also emotionally maximalist, totally ranging from the humorous to the perverse and all the way to the genuinely poignant. I mean, just look at the last section of this chapter, arguably one of the saddest and most affecting scenes in the novel. And not long before this, there's a section where Bloom is sexually dominated by a prostitute with a mustache. You get my point. Obviously, I can't cover the entire chapter, so I'm going to focus in on one particular section. And before I go any further, it's worth noting that most of the chapter takes place in the character's minds, so scenes like this aren't real in the context of the novel, but they're instead used to convey the subconscious thoughts and desires of the characters. So in this fantasy section, Bloom is heralded as a messiah and then persecuted as a martyr. And setting it up, Joyce details a procession for the messianic figure of Bloom, spending page after page discussing the various people at the procession. Characters we've already encountered, as well as members of clergy and members of the royalty. And he also goes into great detail about the horse that Bloom rides, its long flowing crimson tail and golden head stall, as well as tons of other ornate details that establish the setting using very cinematic language. One can think about this section as the equivalent of a David Lean picture, grand and meant to encompass the largeness of the setting. Now we've seen Joyce utilize this maximalism before in chapters like Cyclops, but here it takes on a whole new context as it emphasizes the grandiosity of the messianic Bloom's high social standing. 
This carries over to the section's speech, as Bloom says things like, My beloved subjects, a new era is about to dawn, and other such definitive, very overwrought statements. This is also met by equally maximalistic action, with dramatic and apocalyptic events occurring, including Bloom giving birth to children. Yes, that actually happens. And all of that's to say that maximalism is a perfect tool for emphasizing Bloom's overinflated self-importance. Now, in today's cinema, it has become a virtue to strive towards realism, and there are some perks to this approach. However, filmmakers like Peter Greenaway, and to a lesser extent Wes Anderson, understand the potential impact of maximalism. After all, cinema and literature are ultimately forms of escapism, so by enshrining the medium with a maximalist aesthetic, one can facilitate escapism and give their audience a memorable experience. So what does maximalism look like in filmmaking? Well, it means movies that gravitate towards spectacle. You know, expensive sets and a large cast. It also means exaggerated dialogue and action, in an almost self-aware, very movie-ish way. But above all, it means leaning into the dream of movies, fully embracing the reality-breaking capabilities of the medium. This doesn't mean that they require actual fantasy, you know, aliens or ghouls, but it does mean that they should lean into escapism. And just to bring this high concept down to earth, I was talking to my writing partner, and we were working on this script that deals with espionage. Throughout the process, we've been trying to make it unique and ground the project in some form of reality. But eventually, we both looked at each other and said, you know, you need more explosions in this, more lavish parties, more supervillains on their yachts. And, as has often been the case with Joyce, I look at his work as a go-ahead to do this. Because if a novel that is praised for being a quote-unquote realistic depiction of life can include a scene with a talking bar of soap, there's no reason that people can't throw every creative instinct they have at a work of art. Because this will ultimately help make it unique and memorable. Plus, it's really fun. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll be back by the time Bloom stops fantasizing about sadomasochism. This is the last part in my series on aesthetics, and if I were to summarize Emmaus, I would say that it's subtle yet beautiful. It's definitely not flashy like some of the preceding chapters, but it feels a lot more human. Hello and welcome to the 16th episode of Lights, Camera, Ulysses, the premier podcast on all things Joyce and Cinema. This is your host, Robert Kraut, and I'm recording today from a cabman shelter somewhere deep in Dublin. Just a quick shout out to the sponsors, this episode is brought to you by the Anchor Tattoo Parlor. As the name suggests, this parlor specializes in anchor tattoos, and well, that's about it. Only sailors are admitted, so please bring the proper identification to your appointment. So this is the last part of our mini-series focused around stylistic ideals, and I will use this chapter, Emmaus, to talk about minimalism. Whereas maximalism encourages artistic excess, minimalism encourages restraint. And following the off-the-wall antics of Circe, Joyce uses this chapter to recalibrate the reader, not only in terms of action and scenery, as most of the chapter centers on dialogue confined to a single location, but also in terms of prose style. While some might argue that this is the most poorly written chapter of Ulysses, it is inarguably the easiest to read. Okay, there's a tongue-in-cheek element to this, as Joyce knowingly uses cliches and really basic prose. I mean, just listen to this line. Interest, however, was starting to flag somewhat all around. This line wouldn't be out of place in Harry Potter, but it seems very overly simplistic compared to the rest of Ulysses. And in many ways, Emmaus serves as a minimalistic counterpart to the maximalistic Cyclops, as similar topics are covered, namely politics and Bloom's personal life, and in a similar setting, too. But what's the virtue of minimalism, and why does Joyce set this uneventful chapter in an unpretentious wooden structure? 
Well, just as maximalism blows out ideas to convey a message, minimalism draws them back and turns the ideas into baby food for the audience to easily digest. And in this chapter, Joyce wants to give us a simple portrait of Bloom and Stephen, minimally interfering with style and letting the characters speak for themselves. In terms of film, I want to give my listeners two movies to watch that share a similar aesthetic to this chapter. The first is Naked, directed by Mike Lee, and the second is Down by Law, directed by Jim Jarmusch. And both of these films use limited sets, basic production methods like simple camera work and realistic lighting, and they also share an aversion to cinematic action and traditional narrative structure. Instead, these filmmakers emphasize dialogue and character, and any sense of directorial oversight fades into the background, replaced by realism and naturalism. By sticking with this aesthetic, they are able to ground the audience and make them relate more to the characters and their circumstances. This can be an effective method when covering social or emotional topics as opposed to maximalism, which is better suited to grandiose historical and philosophical ideas. Turning back to Joyce, he is able to make the reader relate to Stephen's play with a continued emphasis on the coffee and pastries that Bloom push on Stephen to aid his drunkenness. This is a really simple idea, but it's a powerful one, helping to draw the reader in after the arguably distancing effects of the last few chapters. So long story short, don't be afraid to make a movie with two characters sitting in a room talking about ordinary topics. You just have to make sure it's well executed. And okay, there's nothing inherently cinematic about characters talking, but that can be okay. And Joyce uses this chapter like Brisson uses his camera, subtly yet with a purpose. And to close off our mini-series here, I want to leave you with a thought. So I really believe that movies should either adhere to minimalism or maximalism, depending on the topic, and I feel like a lot of films hover in the middle of these two ideals, resulting in a product that is aesthetically uninteresting. Don't fall into this trap, pick a lane and stay in it, or commit to aesthetic variants, as we talked about in Oxen. Just stay consistent with your aesthetic ideal. Thank you for tuning in this week, and we'll be back by the time Steven gets sober. If you didn't like the digressions in Cyclops, you certainly won't like the odd form in this chapter. But to me, it's just weird enough to work. It also bookends some of the ideas brought up in episode 5. Hello and welcome to the 17th episode of Lights, Camera, Ulysses, the premier podcast on all things Joyce and Cinema. This is your host, Robert Kraut, and I'm recording today from Eccles Street. Just a quick shout out to the sponsors, this episode is brought to you by Easy Piss, a natural diuretic that will help your urine flow firmly and often. After my series on the broad principle of aesthetics, I want to return to the most basic cinematic principle, the closest thing to a divine edict in the filmmaking community, and that is to show, not tell. In other words, implication via visual storytelling or dialogue is always better than rote exposition when it comes to telling your audience something. Luckily, in this chapter, Joyce executes this principle beautifully in two particular instances. The first is an example of implication through dialogue or words. So I'm going to give you the idea that Joyce is trying to convey. And that is that Stephen and Bloom are on ultimately separate paths and will part ways at the end of the night. An unskilled writer or screenwriter would write dialogue like, you know, Stephen, I like you a lot. You should stay the night. To which Stephen would reply, I can't. I have matters to attend to. Though enjoy your company. But Joyce being Joyce, shows not tells in the most spectacular way possible, using the dissimilar trajectories of the two men's urine to convey the separation. A filmmaker might show not tell this concept through camera work, gradually isolating these two characters and making their paths feel incongruent. 
Or they could really go for it and try filming the two men pissing differently. I don't know. The second example of show don't tell demonstrates Joyce's use of visual implication. So the idea in this section is that Bloom returns and sees evidence of Molly's affair with Boylan. Again, an unskilled writer would come out and express this idea in a straightforward way. And an unskilled filmmaker would have Bloom waking Molly up, confronting her and saying things like, I can tell someone was here. But using his words like a camera, Joyce has Bloom looking around the room, panning from detail to detail and noticing things like deposited articles of clothing, clean linen, and the impression of a male form on the bed. These visual cues are really cinematic, and they could just as easily be conveyed on film to the same effect, you know, having a POV shot of Bloom walking into the room and panning around to all of these details, down to the loose bed springs and crumbs of food that were left behind. But why exactly is the principle of show-don't-tell so important in filmmaking? Well, in literature, it's kind of an absurd expression, as there are only things to tell and nothing can be shown visually. But the idea is to write subtly and to use implication. However, film is a visual medium, and audiences, whether consciously or not, yearn for a visual experience, and not an expositional one. If you need proof of this, just consider a famous battle scene, like one from Lawrence of Arabia, being cut from the movie, replaced with two characters talking about the battle, how epic it was, and how many people died, etc. This would be obviously unsatisfying, and would probably bore the viewer to death as opposed to actually showing them the battle and using camera work and epic set pieces to demonstrate the scale of the event. But this show-don't-tell principle shouldn't just apply to action, but to ideas and emotion as well. Because the audience will feel a character's sadness if it's conveyed realistically. And through visual storytelling as opposed to the character coming out and saying, you know, I'm very sad today. And to close this out, I can't emphasize just how important this principle is for effective storytelling. And one can really look at the entirety of Ulysses to see how it works, as Joyce is a master of this concept. Thank you for tuning in this week, and we'll be back by the time I figure out what that dot at the end of the chapter means. Hello, and welcome to the 18th episode of Lights, Camera, Ulysses, the premier podcast on all things Joyce and cinema. This is your host, Robert Kraut, and I'm recording today from my bed. Just a quick shout out to the sponsors. This episode is brought to you by the Dublin Bread Company. At the Dublin Bread Company, we sell bread by the foot. In this episode, I want to return to cinematic technique, and I think that there are two really important lessons that can be gleaned from Penelope. As with every chapter in Ulysses, Penelope takes on its own highly unique form, this time consisting of Molly Bloom's interior monologue. However, unlike Stephen's interior monologue back in Proteus, this chapter spills out Molly's thoughts over the course of only eight sentences, albeit long ones. And each of these sentences goes on for pages, flowing through her memories and desires as she thinks about Bloom, Boylan, and her own sexuality. While some might find this lack of punctuation to be frustrating, I think it dramatically highlights the idea of flow, or letting things play out. In film, there is always a temptation to edit things to death, altering footage to evoke certain emotions in the audience, but sometimes it's nice to step back and allow the scenes to speak for themselves. There's a Japanese filmmaker named Kenji Mizuguchi who's a master at this, and in all of his films it's common for five minutes to go by without a single cut. This lack of directorial interference puts the audience member in the scene and grounds him in a sense of realism. It also dilates time because an uncut scene of dialogue will calibrate itself with the experience of having a conversation, and it will feel like you're in a room with these characters, lost in their musings, and five minutes will feel more like two or three. 
This is because people don't experience life through edits or punctuation. That's why reading Penelope puts you more into Molly's headspace than Proteus did with Stephen, at least in my opinion. I found myself thinking what she thought, feeling what she felt, as the prose flowed through my mind, unbroken and hypnotizing. I'm not sure how long it took me to read this chapter, but it seemed like only 20 minutes. And the same can be said of films, so if you're looking to tap into realism, consider this technique. The other really important lesson that Penelope teaches us has to do with endings. I know this is to some extent a matter of preference, but I always love stories that have an ambiguous finale, as I feel that I get more bang for my buck, so to speak. Because clear-cut endings ensure that as soon as you leave the theater or put down your book, the experience ends, but ambiguous stories stick in the audience's mind and return to them over the years as they try to answer the question of what happens next or what did that mean. I really haven't seen a more potent example of this than Penelope, as Joyce purposefully constructs it in a way where we're left with more questions than answers. This has to do with the fact that the chapter's eight sections can be read in any order, which destroys any hope of resolution, as we're not sure which of Molly's epiphanies prevail. It also has to do with Joyce's insistence on contradiction. For instance, Molly will go from criticizing Boylan to pondering their next meeting, and she'll go from being disgusted with Bloom to fondly recalling some of their time together. This means that we don't really know what will happen after that final yes, but it's an ending that still haunts me and probably will for years to come as I return to Ulysses trying to figure out what Bloom or Steven are up to these days. It's kind of a fun thought. <laughs> To be honest, I don't think this level of powerful ambiguity can be achieved in films, as they last for a much shorter duration than novels, and therefore have less staying power, but I think it should be strived for. Thank you for tuning in this week, and we'll be back before... Oh wait, we won't be back. This is the last episode. So I want to thank you for hanging in there with this novel and with me. I know it could be difficult at times, but I really do believe that there are crucial artistic and... Ugh, I hate this phrase, but life lessons that can be taken away from Ulysses. So I'm signing off for now, and I think I'm going to go make a movie. Something that will inevitably inde be indebted to Joyce and Ulysses in some ways. Yes, yes, yes.